Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Nico Taki, Rachel Comerfield, Stephanie Hall, Brenna Allen, Christina Orley, and Michael Vasquez. We couldn't do this without you. Patrons get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord, where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. Bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Different tiers get stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, too. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash 13 pod. Just look for a link in the show notes. A couple of quick corrections. Last month, we incorrectly, well, we didn't incorrectly. I'm going to bring Brooke in here. I incorrectly pronounced one of our patrons' names. I'm so sorry, Oni, for mispronouncing your name as Ani. We're so happy to have you and to say your name correctly. Also, we completely left out a cast member from the credits. El Woolery was Dominique in last month's episode, Catch Your Death. And that one was completely my fault. Before we get into today's show, we have a TikTok now. We've actually had a TikTok for a while, but we didn't know what to do with it because we're all older than the typical TikTok demographic. Yes, um, we all are older <laughs> than the typical TikTok demographic. I'm just going to lump you all in with me. Um, but we now have an active TikTok, so follow us there. You can see our faces and uh, some spooky content, mostly about my very haunted house, but also we just post fun, silly stuff about recording and about us too so it's fun go find us on tiktok search for 13 podcast and look for the logo also keep an eye on the merch store for some new designs coming up soon we'll announce them when they're actually ready to go but if you've been thinking about picking something up and you haven't done it yet now's the time it may be gone or uh, new stuff might be taking its place before our next episode don't quote me on that we're not really sure but it could be so now's the time to do it Today's episode is one of my stories, and we're thrilled to have two very special guests back on the show with us this month. First and foremost, our most beloved guest. And Actually, our, oh. um, girlfriend of the podcast. All right, girlfriend of the podcast. Shelby Scott is back on the show. If you don't already know about Shelby's show, Scare You to Sleep, honestly, what are you doing? Hit pause, go subscribe to Scare You to Sleep, and come back and listen to the rest of this episode when you're done. You won't regret it. We're all avid listeners. You're going to be an avid listener, too. Check her out, Scare You to Sleep, wherever you listen right now. We also have Nate Dufort coming back on the show. Nate's been all over the podcast world. You can find him currently at All My Neighbors Are Dead, Unspookable, and Reach, a space podcast for kids. And now, on with the show. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a priest. My family was Catholic, and being a priest seemed like the best job I could imagine. You got to hang around in beautiful old church buildings, reading from and taking care of old books and artifacts. And every week, you stood before a crowd of people and commanded their attention. Everyone loved the priest. Everyone trusted him. And that was everything I wanted to be. That thought and that desire was whole and complete in my heart from a young age. And as I grew up and learned more about the church, 
I took it all in through the lens of becoming that central figure in the life of the community. So naturally, I began seminary when I was 19. Seminary made me think about the church in ways that I never had. And by the end of my first year, I was no longer a believer. I guess just because something feels right doesn't mean that that's where you belong. From time to time after that, I had panic attacks. The sudden concern that I was going to hell for losing my faith would come to me in the middle of the night. But as the darkness drew to an end and the light of morning came through the windows, those fears would melt away and soon enough, they would be gone entirely. After I left seminary, a lot changed in my life. But a few things didn't change. I still loved the idea of hanging around old buildings, reading and caring for old books and artifacts, and standing in front of a congregation that hung on my every word. So, I became a college professor. As an academic, I've never put a lot of stock into the idea of haunted houses. Maybe that's because it just feels like a different kind of belief in the afterlife. And more than that, none of it made any sense when you apply critical thinking to it. After all, why would something as meaningless and arbitrary as a property line trap a ghost in a particular place? Property lines aren't real. They're something that we made up. There's no physics or substance to them. So, I didn't think much of it when my wife and I moved into an old house that had been empty for a few years. That whole thing about a realtor being required to tell you when someone's died in the house? Well, that's not real. But one Google search of the address turned up a number of articles in local and regional newspapers. Something awful happened there. I read one of the more credible-looking articles. There wasn't a lot of detail, but a family of four died in the house. The newspapers didn't list a cause of death. Police investigated whether foul play was involved, but they failed to make a determination. It was a complicated case. On the main search page, there were several articles with a family photo included above the headline. Lots of urban legend and ghost story sites as well. I didn't pay any mind to those. I like a good ghost story as much as anyone else, but not when I'm going to live there. I found that it's possible to know too much about something. By learning any more about the tragedy that happened here, I don't know. Why let something that you can't change ruin a good thing? Like I said, I don't believe in the supernatural. I love a good ghost story, but that's all they are, just stories. Over the course of our two-day move-in, many of our new neighbors came to introduce themselves. One neighbor, two doors down, was named Jacques. Jacques had been in the neighborhood for 40 years. He told us it was nice to see the house lived in again. It went without being said that Jacques and many of the other neighbors who'd been there forever 
They would have been there that awful morning when it happened. The ones who stood on their porches and watched as they removed the bodies one by one. The ones who were quoted in the newspaper and on TV. No one talked about the house's history other than vague mentions about how long it had been empty. They were feeling us out, trying to figure out if we knew. And even though the neighbors were all friendly and welcoming when we moved in, we didn't ask and they didn't tell. When everything was finally off the truck, we had a moment to breathe. Even though the house was still a mess of boxes and haphazardly placed furniture, we were excited to be there. We loved the house and we loved the neighborhood. It was one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city. It was called South Hill. And even though our street was mostly families, the neighborhood as a whole was a mix of college students and families and people who worked for the university. It had a lot of energy, lots of people on the sidewalks. It was close enough to campus that I could walk to work. The house had an office for my wife and a study for me. This was everything we were looking for. It had been a while since our last move, and I'd forgotten just how strange a place can feel when you're not unpacked yet, before everything is settled. How much wood floors can creak, and how those creaks echo around the empty walls. A few days after we'd arrived, my wife had to go away for work. It was bad timing, extremely hectic and stressful for her. But I told her that I'd get the place in order while she was gone. She'd come home to a house that was much more put together than the one she left. Like I told you before, I don't believe in the supernatural. So the first time something strange happened, it didn't really register as something strange. It happened when my wife left for the airport the next morning. She was supposed to be out of the house by 4 a.m. She tried her best to sneak out, but I'm a light sleeper. I came downstairs to say goodbye as she was leaving. She gave me a kiss and she rushed out the door. I locked up after her, watched her pull away from her spot on the street, and then I went back upstairs to sleep for a couple more hours. About 30 minutes later, I woke up to a sound. I reached over for my phone. It was a text from my wife. Hey, silly, you locked me out. I got up and made my way to the front door. She should have been at the airport by now. Half asleep, I unlocked the bolt and pulled open the door. No one was there. I felt around for my phone, but I must have left it upstairs on the end table. Her car wasn't parked on the street. I stepped out on the porch and looked in both directions. The neighborhood was quiet, still a bit too early for our neighbors to be starting their day. There was the sound of a train in the distance. I turned on the porch light to be sure. Nothing. 
When I closed the door, there was a strange feeling that I just couldn't shake. I took one more look out that big front window. She wasn't on the porch. She wasn't there. I went back upstairs and checked my phone. Did I misread it? But there was no message from my wife. No message from anyone. Could I have dreamed it? I laid there for a long time, alert to every sound outside the house. The house felt strange again. It didn't feel like a home. It was empty and unfamiliar, foreign and eerie. When I looked at my phone again, there were only 20 minutes left until my alarm went off. As I showered and got ready for work, that strange text, the feeling that I wasn't alone, it faded, and eventually, it disappeared, and I didn't think about it again. One of the things that I love about my new neighborhood is that it's only a 10-minute walk to my building at the university. The days are getting longer, but it still gets dark early and sometimes I finish out the night while the sun is setting. On those nights, I can't help but think back to my childhood dream of becoming a priest. Here I am, spending my time in this old building, one that feels like it was plucked from a different era, strolling the halls after dark all by myself, preparing to impart knowledge and wisdom to my students, a contemplative life. My walk home from work takes me down a busy block of bars and restaurants on the edge of campus, and then a quieter but still busy stretch of storefronts with apartments above them. And then I turn onto my street, and the last few minutes are quiet and solitary. There are old houses, and trees line the sidewalks. I'm almost home when I hear someone call out my name. It's Shock from his front porch. Hey, neighbor. How you settling in? I told him that everything was going fine. I don't know if I told you, but I'm running the neighborhood center. If you'd like, I could leave you an event calendar. Maybe give you a chance to meet some more of the folks around here. Not to mention, it's a fascinating place. If you want to know anything about the neighborhood, we have it. I told him to feel free to leave one for us, and we'd try to make it over there. We'd already met several of our neighbors, and everyone seemed really close-knit, which I didn't expect from a neighborhood near campus. As I left Jacques on his front porch and looked a few doors down, my house was dark. My wife was still out of town for a couple of days, so I had time to start putting the house together. But just like that, there it was again. The memory of that strange text from earlier that morning coming downstairs and opening the door to look for her, only finding the pre-dawn stillness. I tried to shake away the memory, to convince myself again that I was half asleep and dreaming. After all, there was no text on my phone. But sometimes when a thought like that gets into your head, it sticks. Once inside, I put on a show for background noise and made dinner. 
I looked over my shoulder from time to time, not sure what it was that I thought I would see. I started unpacking the boxes that were stacked in the living room. I sent photos to my wife as I made progress. When it was time to start winding down for the night, I sent her a good night text. I walked through the house, turning off lights and checking doors. With the downstairs completely dark, I took one more look out that big front window. I really liked the amount of light that it let in during the day. But at night? At night, I couldn't look past that window without the thought of someone standing there, looking in. We really needed a curtain. I added that to my mental list of things to do and went upstairs. My wife got home from her trip while I was still at work. When I walked up to the door, I noticed the monthly schedule for the neighborhood center in our mailbox. Jacques must have left it for me after our conversation. There wasn't anything that looked particularly interesting. That weekend, we'd been invited to a get-together of families on our block. It was a kind of welcome-to-the-neighborhood gathering. It was hosted by the family across the street. When we arrived, the house was full. We knew almost all the faces in the crowd. We'd met them in passing. There were a few others that we were introduced to. To be honest, I wasn't really expecting to have a good time. I don't like being in rooms with a lot of people I don't know. But it turned out to be a lot of fun. We really liked everyone that lived around us. After a few drinks, my wife started telling her favorite story from when we were dating. She felt right at home. So we're at a bar and we're about to leave. I go to the bathroom and leave my purse with him. The group next to us starts to leave and he's so drunk. He just grabs my purse and starts walking with them. He's got my phone. (laughs) I was there for 30 minutes waiting for him to come back and he's just following these other people God knows how far. Okay, okay, okay. In my defense, as soon as I realized what happened, I tried to call him. I had 13 missed calls because he had my phone. (laughs) When the party started winding down, we went back across the street. We sat on the porch and had one more drink before bed. We were quiet for a moment, and then my wife spoke up. One of the ladies across the street told me what happened here. I felt a kind of sinking feeling, a kind of dread in my chest. I didn't know what to say. Honestly, I'd imagined it being worse. You know, your mind kind of fills in the gaps with the worst-case scenario. I told her that I looked at a couple of articles, but they didn't go into a lot of detail. She wasn't home, the lady that told me. She wasn't home when they found them, but she heard about it from everyone who was. We finished our drinks and went inside. We got ready for bed and took a couple more things down to the basement. On the way up, I flipped off the lights on the basement stairs and opened up the window in the kitchen. Why'd you open the window? It's going to be cold tonight. I look back at the window over the sink. I don't know why I did that. I guess that last drink on the porch got to me. Why don't you uh, close that window and come upstairs? I've got something for you to open up. I have no idea what that meant. 
but I also knew exactly what it meant. I closed the window, and I followed her upstairs. The next month was pretty uneventful. The house was feeling more like a home. There were things on the walls, and down in the basement, there were hardly any boxes still waiting to be unpacked. We'd actually turned the basement into a somewhat functional space. My wife had to go away for work again. And as that day approached, I started making plans for what I'd do when I had the place to myself. Don't get me wrong, I love my wife and I love spending time with her. But I also like time to myself. After all, my childhood ambition was to be alone in old buildings with old books. She went to bed early the night before her flight. She'd have to be up and out of the house by dawn. The next morning, I started to wake up when I felt her weight lift off the mattress. I heard her shuffling around the room. I rolled over to say goodbye. And when I opened my eyes, it was daylight. I sat up, confused. She was supposed to be at the airport by 5.30. Judging by the amount of light outside, we were both late. But as I looked around the room, and as I listened for signs of movement around the house, there was nothing. Downstairs, I could smell her body wash in the shower. I looked out the window, and her car was gone from its spot on the street in front of the house. There was a note on the kitchen table. Have a good week. At work, I tried not to think about it, but it was right there, just behind every conscious thought, lingering in the background. I know that I felt her. I felt something. Something getting out of bed that morning. I finished up early that day, but I wasn't ready to go home. I stuck around my office, not really doing anything. The building grew more quiet as the afternoon turned into evening. And just like that, I was back in my element. I was alone in this old building. I was able to relax for a moment. And then I decided it was time to start walking home. Just before I turned off my monitor for the night, I noticed a new email in my inbox. The domain name was from a university in Louisville, Professor Abigail Willow. And the subject line was my address. I opened the email, and what I found was short and sweet. She's a professor in Louisville, and in her spare time, she studies paranormal phenomena. Our new house had been on her radar, and she had an alert set up to go off when someone purchased it. She asked if I'd be willing to meet her and talk about the place. She was willing to come to Lexington to meet me. I stared at my screen for a moment, and I decided that I wasn't going to respond. I don't believe in the supernatural. As I walked home, the bars and restaurants on the main road were filling up. 
and the little shops and offices on the side streets were emptying out. When I got home, there was a sense of dread that came over me. Inside, the note that my wife had left on the table, it was still right where I'd left it. I walked through the whole house, starting in the basement and then the first floor. I looked under the couches and in all the closets. Then I made my way upstairs to the bedrooms. It was empty, just me. Of course it was. I used my phone to get into my work email again. I wanted to send the email from Professor Willow to my wife. Maybe we could make fun of it and in the process it would undermine some of the creepiness of the house. When I opened my inbox, I saw that there was a second email from her. She said she understands if I don't want to meet her, but she wrote to be careful that I don't let it in. She says it has a way of making you feel safe, even when you're not. I started typing out a response, telling her not to contact me again, but I didn't. I thought that it would only encourage her more. After all, silence is an answer in itself. Nonetheless, her email had unnerved me. I thought about asking a friend if they wanted to come over and hang out or even going to a hotel for the night, but I decided better of it. I was a grown man. I wasn't going to let a stranger scare me out of my own home. That night I laid awake. I heard every creak and pop of the house settling. I heard quiet footsteps outside on the sidewalk. I listened as passers-by approached and then as they faded away. I was awake for a long time, but once again, nothing happened. After I'd laid awake all night, I decided that I was in no shape to go lecture in front of hundreds of students. I called in and then I fell into a heavy sleep. I woke up sometime after noon. I was feeling off and groggy. As I got myself together and in the light of day, I was able to think rationally about what happened the night before. Something felt off about this house, but maybe it wasn't the house. Maybe it was just me. For some reason, my mind was playing tricks on me here. I remembered what Jacques had told me about the neighborhood center about how if there was ever anything I wanted to learn about the neighborhood, they had it there. Maybe it was time to learn more about what happened here. Maybe my mind couldn't handle the not knowing, and subconsciously, it was acting out. Later that afternoon, I walked down to the neighborhood center. It was in an old schoolhouse, the second school built in the city, according to the historical marker out front. Inside, the building was quiet. It opened up into a large room that took up a big portion of the first floor. There were high windows, and the walls were lined with stacks of chairs and fold-out tables. I heard movement down the hall, and a moment later, Jacques appeared. He seemed happy to see me there. Hey there, neighbor. What brings you here? 
I didn't know how to bring up the real reason that I'd come, so I told him that I was just exploring the neighborhood and decided to stop in. He gave me a tour around the place. The big room downstairs is where events happen, scout meetings, knitting groups, book clubs, and birthday parties for the kids. There was a stairway, and up those stairs were a series of smaller rooms and a winding hallway. All along those walls through that winding hallway, there was a series of framed photographs. They all looked similar to each other. Jacques gestured toward one of the photos. This is my favorite part of the whole place. I looked closer at the photos. They were all taken from outside the front entrance of the neighborhood center. They were kids in Halloween costumes. One photo per year, dating back to the 1980s. Jacques pointed to the photo labeled 1984. This was our first year in South Hill. The third year that we did these photos. I followed his finger and I saw a younger version of him. He was a proud dad, standing alongside his wife. In front of them, their kids were dressed up and smiling from ear to ear. He looked to be in his late 20s or early 30s. We walked the hallway following its twists and turns through the second floor. I looked down the whole line of photos, right up to the present. Some years there were more kids than others. They grew up a little bit from photo to photo. This was Lonnie Adams' idea. He's my predecessor here. Great way to document a neighborhood, don't you think? Each one's like a little time capsule. The costumes tell you what's going on in the world that year. Handful of these kids in those first photos are still here. They went away and came back, and they have their own kids in the more recent photos. This is a special place. It has a way of drawing you back home. I noticed that when we arrived at the most recent photos, Jacques seemed to hesitate. I looked at the names on the caption, and then I saw why. He changed the subject and asked how we were settling into the house. I told him that we were settling in just fine. There was an awkward moment, and then I decided to get on with it. I asked him, which family lived in our house? He seemed relieved to hear that it was okay to talk about it. He went to the photo from four years ago and he tapped his finger on the family on the far right edge of the group. They're right here. Nice family. Seemed to have everything going for them. It was so tragic. Here in these photos, they seemed completely unremarkable. Just a dad and a mom and two kids, just living their lives. It's been nice to have the house occupied again. All those years it sat empty. It just felt like, well, it felt like a ghost haunting the whole street. You couldn't look at it without thinking about them. Now that you're all there, it's easy to forget about it. The street feels normal again. I'm sorry, you probably don't want to hear about all this. I told him that actually all I knew were the rumors. I didn't know what to believe. Are you sure you want to know? I told a half-truth, 
I told him that I had been having bad dreams, that in the absence of knowing what happened, my mind was filling in the blanks with the worst possible scenarios. Then I told him the full truth. I really don't want my wife to know that it's bothering me. He looked me up and down. I don't know what he was looking for, but after a moment, he started telling me a story. Part of the problem, he said, was that no one actually knows what happened. It was early, and it was a foggy morning. He said he remembered how still the air was. The neighbors across the street, they went out front that morning, and she noticed that the front door was cracked, just a little bit. She thought that maybe one of them went out for a morning run, and just didn't pull the door all the way shut. She kept an eye on the house, but didn't do anything right away. After an hour or so, that feeling in her chest and that thought in the back of her mind had gotten to be too much. She went across the street, and right away, she noticed that there were no lights on inside. That crack in the door was pitch black. Before she even made it to the door, She said that she could smell it. It was gas. Natural gas. Jacques said he remembered hearing her yell for help, but she didn't wait for anyone to come. She ran inside shouting their names, trying to get someone's attention. She said she could hear the gas stove clicking as soon as she was inside the door. She ran to the kitchen. She was able to turn off the stove, but the gas was so strong she couldn't do anything else. She had to get back out. When the police and ambulances arrived a few minutes later, they had to let the air clear out of the house before they could get inside. And that's when they found them. Mom and dad and the two kids. They were in the kitchen. I wondered out loud to Jacques why they'd been found in there. I thought about the layout of our kitchen. It's not that big. Four bodies in there? When she ran in, she must have tripped over them to get to the stove. Jacques gave me a look. And then he told me that there's something the police never released to the public, but something that the neighbor across the street said she saw in there. He took a long breath. When she ran in, all four burners were going. There was a tremendous amount of gas. The lights were all off, but through the window over the sink, There was a little bit of light coming through the morning fog. And that's when she saw them. Mom, Dad, and the two little ones. They weren't on the floor. They were sitting at the kitchen table. After I left the neighborhood center, I went back to the house. But as I stood in front of the sink, There was a heaviness as I thought about the kitchen table behind me. Based on the layout of our kitchen, it didn't make sense for a table to go anywhere else. That had to have been where it happened. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't think that this house is haunted. We don't linger here after it's all over. We're just gone. But even so, I didn't want to be here. So I took a walk around the neighborhood. In South Hill, 
The streets that go north and south have old Victorian homes, and the ones that go east and west have little storefronts with apartments over top of them. I've probably driven down every street in this neighborhood going to and from work over the years. I was very familiar with it when we moved in. But walking a place is different than driving it. You'll notice little details and flourishes on the houses. You get an idea about the people who live there from the things on their porch. You hear the wind chimes and the kids playing. It's just different. My mind wandered as I walked, but it kept coming back to that image of family sitting at the kitchen table, dead from natural gas poisoning. What would explain that? If it were an accidental leak, they'd have noticed the smell and gotten out of the house or just turned off the burners. Why didn't the house explode anyway? The door was open, but if that's the case, why didn't the gas just escape? Maybe the open door relieved just enough pressure to keep the gas from getting dense enough to explode, but still enough to poison the people inside. It didn't matter now. Like Jacques had said, the house felt like a ghost. Until we moved in, it was a reminder of what happened. Maybe that's why the neighborhood was so friendly. With us there, they didn't have to think about it anymore. The neighborhood kids who lost their friends, that didn't have to be the first thing on their minds when they walked by that house. After I'd walked for a while, I got takeout from one of the restaurants on the main road that separates campus from the neighborhood. On my way home, the sun was setting behind me. The sky in front of me was growing darker. Off in the distance, the blue and white lights from the high-rises downtown. I sat on the porch and I ate my dinner. From my porch, I saw neighbors walking dogs, out for a run, or walking home from the store. They passed by and said hello, or they nodded and waved, and I did the same. But even so, I found myself feeling more isolated and alone. Even as the streetlights clicked on, the street itself felt darker than normal. I knew that this was all in my head. As it turns out, knowing the truth of what happened didn't make it better. I just had one more night. My wife would be home tomorrow, and I couldn't wait. With my wife home, life returned to normal and my unease about the house subsided too. I wasn't left alone to get lost in my thoughts anymore. That week, she told me what she'd heard about the family who lived here before us. She told me that they died of carbon monoxide poisoning. It wasn't exactly the way that Jacques had told me, but it was close. She didn't mention anything about the family sitting at the table, and she didn't mention that the gas was coming from the stove just feet away from them. I decided not to tell her either. It was upsetting enough to me when I was home alone. There was no reason for me to mention it and pass that same unease on to her. And there were no more weird instances in the house either. And I think I figured out what was going on with all those little unexplained events. I used to have terrible anxiety attacks. I went to a psychiatrist and she told me that an anxiety attack, the kind that I was having, 
It was my body responding to an emergency that wasn't happening. And then I thought about all the new stressors in our lives, the new place, the knowledge that something happened here, all the normal move-in stresses combined with my wife suddenly having to spend so much time traveling. Well, all that change and uncertainty, it probably just drove my half-waking mind to fixate on the person who gave me the most comfort in life. It made up little scenarios where she was still here, or that she'd come back. Things like an imaginary text that she'd come back home but I'd locked her out of the house, or the feeling of her weight in bed next to me. These were all symptoms of my mind trying to comfort me, but they were manifesting in really unhelpful ways. At least that's what I thought. But the next time, the next time it happened, she was home. It happened on a Saturday night. Weekend nights in the neighborhood can be a little loud. After all, it's a neighborhood near campus. We're not that close to any of the bars, but groups will cut through the neighborhood all night long, drunk and laughing, shouting. You get used to it after a while. It just becomes a part of the background noise. That night, I went to bed early and she stayed up downstairs. I woke up in the middle of the night and I could hear my wife breathing next to me. I got up to use the restroom and I took my phone to light the way. While I was in the bathroom, my phone buzzed. It was a text from my wife. She said she was coming down now. Coming down from where? We were already upstairs. Was she texting me in her sleep? Something about the message felt wrong, and I got that familiar tingling in the back of my neck. I heard movement, and I got to the bathroom door as quick as I could. I opened it just in time to watch her disappear down the stairs. Her footsteps creaked on the wood. I tried to get her attention, but she didn't respond. Is she sleepwalking? By the time I started down the stairs, she was already out of sight. When I got to the bottom, I looked in the living room. She wasn't there. She wasn't in the bathroom either. I heard the floor squeaking down the hall, in the kitchen. When I turned the corner, the lights were off, but I could see her silhouette in the dim light from the window over the sink. She was sitting at the kitchen table. She was motionless, sitting up straight, and I couldn't tell, but it felt like her eyes were on me. I said her name, this time in more of a panic, my voice shaking a little bit. And then I flipped on the light. She shook her head and came to. Hey, what are you doing? I told her that she was sleepwalking, that I'd followed her down here. She'd never been a sleepwalker, and it took a moment for her to get her head around the idea. Outside, I heard voices, laughing and shouting, people leaving the bars. The clock on the microwave said 3 a.m. We decided to go back to bed, 
and we talk about it in the morning. Before we went upstairs, my wife asked me a question that chilled my blood. Was I supposed to preheat the oven? The next day, we talked about the night before. I told my wife the story the way Jacques had told me. The open door. The burners pouring gas into the house. The family sitting together at the kitchen table. I watched her face go white as she made the connection to last night. The way she was sleepwalking to the kitchen table. The feeling that she needed to preheat the oven in the middle of the night. I don't believe in ghosts. I didn't either. There has to be another way to explain this. I could tell from the way her eyes moved. She was searching for an explanation, but we both knew there wasn't one. We made plans to stay with a friend for a few days while we figured out what to do next. After a few days, we started getting text messages from our new neighbors asking if everything was okay. We didn't know what to say, so we didn't respond. I still drove through South Hill to get to work at the university, and I stopped by the house during the day to grab things that we needed. I was in and out fast. But while I was there, during the day, everything felt fine. But at night, I drove by the place on my way home from work. The dark windows. There was a feeling like I was being watched by someone inside. I didn't even feel safe parked on the curb. And I had dreams. I dreamed that I woke up upstairs in the house. I was alone. And in my mind, I could see the back door. It was left cracked open, swaying just a little bit in the gentle wind. A thin beam of silver light shone through it on the kitchen floor. In another dream, I laid in bed at the old house as I heard someone walking around downstairs. Slow, deliberate footsteps pacing back and forth through the first floor. Each time I woke up in a panic, unsure for a moment where I was. But then, I'd register the room that I was sleeping in, in a different house, with my wife in bed next to me. I wasn't alone. I remembered learning in church that there were things that you could do to invite evil into your life. You could create openings doing things like dabbling in witchcraft or playing with Ouija boards. But I didn't do anything like that. And I thought back to the first week at the new house, when my wife left the airport and I got that strange text. I went downstairs. The door was locked. I opened it and took a long look up and down the street. She wasn't there, and the text wasn't there anymore either. Like it had never happened. When I opened the door that night, when I stepped out on the porch, did something trick me? into letting it in. I would lie awake with those thoughts racing through my mind. But just like when I left seminary, 
As the morning light rose over the horizon, those fears faded away too. And as the days went by, we felt more and more distant from the house, and I began to feel a little silly. And I could tell that my wife did too. We talked it over, and we decided that it was time to go back. We'd had a truly frightening experience, but it was nothing more than that. A half-awake dream about a text message, a sleepwalking incident. If you try to explain that to someone outside the situation, it sounds ridiculous. And as an academic, I have to believe that it sounds silly because it is silly. And I know that if we were to pick up and move, if we were to start over somewhere else, we would look back at this in 10 or 20 years after having lost so much money on this house, leaving behind an amazing neighborhood. And we'd see this as one of the biggest regrets of our lives. So we packed up our things and we thanked our friend and we went back to the house in South Hill. I won't pretend that it didn't take a little getting used to at first. I had some sleepless nights where I listened for every little noise. But with a little bit of time, things went back to normal at the house in South Hill. It even got to the point where I was able to enjoy my time alone again while my wife was traveling. And for a while, everything was normal. So much so that when I opened my work email and found another message from Professor Willow, something about how the house was trying to make us afraid to leave, I just ignored it. My wife and I knew what happened in our house and we come to terms with it. We had a hard time adjusting, but now we were over it. At least we thought we were. One night, I woke up to a strange sound downstairs. I sat up and my wife stirred in bed next to me. What is it? I listened for it again. Nothing. I got up, grabbed my phone, turned on the flashlight, and I went to the stairs. As I looked down, I remembered those dreams, listening to the footsteps of someone pacing downstairs in the night. I listened for the sound again, and a few moments later, Can you see anything? I made my way down the stairs to the dark hallway between the living room and the kitchen. I turned off the light on my phone. If there was someone in the house or trying to get in, I didn't want them to be able to see where I was. It was coming from the living room. I turned the corner and I saw something that froze me where I stood. Outside that big front window, standing on the porch, there was a figure looking in the window. The porch light was on, making it crystal clear who I was looking at. But it was impossible. She had just been in bed with me. But there she was, glaring in the window, a big smile on her lips 
Her eyes were fixed directly on me, even though there's no way she could see in. I felt my phone buzz in my hand. I looked at the screen, a text from my wife's number. You locked me out, silly. Come let me in. I looked back to the window, and she stood motionless, staring directly at me. I looked back at the window, and she stood motionless. Upstairs, I heard my wife's footsteps. I called up to her, telling her not to come down, but I heard her coming down the stairs anyway. Her footsteps coming down at a steady clip, calm and steady. When she got to the bottom, she didn't turn right to find me in the living room. She went the other way. I kept my eyes on the person outside the window. She didn't move. I called out to my wife, telling her to call 911. And then, out of nowhere, I remembered that email I got from Professor Willow, the one that I'd ignored weeks before, the one where she told me that it wants to make us afraid to leave. Those words passed through my mind just as I turned to see my wife walk into the kitchen. And then, I heard the most awful sound. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you've heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was The House in South Hill, written and narrated by Ian Epperson. The narrator's wife was Shelby Scott. Jacques was Nate Dufort. Editing and sound design by Josiah Knight. Music by Caleb Ritchie, with assistance from Brooke Jeanette and Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Paul Doyle, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Jack Chaddock, Temple Ruff, and Emily Carroll. Thank you so much for your support. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo, and we'll have links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show, or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes, too. Bridget Howard is tapping on your window. Thanks for listening. See you next month. <laughs>